Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. I want to thank you guys for being here with us this evening. If you're joining with us online, thanks for being with us. We appreciate you being a part of the Calvary family. You can go ahead and open up to the book of Acts if you've got a Bible or Bible app on your device. If you don't, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. You can grab one of those. And we're going to be continuing in this. We've been going through the book of Acts here as a church family now for about two and a half months or so. And the interesting thing about going through a book study like this is really two things. First, uh, there's times when you have to cover a ton of ground, and uh, Pastor Chad is out of town, and he very kindly gave me 67 verses for us to, to address tonight. So I hope you guys brought some coffee, a Red Bull, a Mountain Dew, something. We're going to be here for a really long time. I'm kidding, hopefully. Um, the second and more serious thing, though, is that there's times where when you're going through a book study, you get to a, a section that, that maybe you wouldn't go and pick on your own. You wouldn't pick for a given Sunday, a given Saturday evening to address. And, and that's kind of where we're at tonight because we're talking about the story of the first Christian martyr, the first person killed for their faith in the story of the, his, the early church. And and what's interesting about this is this story has, I think, two really important applications for us here today. And the first is that it's easy to think that only bad things happen from bad situations, right? That's kind of the, the lesson of 2020. It's a bad year, only bad things happen. You, know, you, you hear all these jokes and it's just, oh, it's just 2020, it's just part of where it is. But in reality, when we look at Scripture, we see something very different than that. We see throughout the, the story of history and God working, we see God working through the bad to bring about good. We see tragic situations and difficult moments and things that just seem completely and totally bad, and yet God brings about something good and beautiful from it. And that's what we're going to see here tonight as well. And I think that even if you dig into this year specifically for you, as easy it is to make fun of 2020 and call it the worst year ever, I bet that you're going to dig in and find some really good things that have happened, maybe even some good things specifically as a result of some of the changes that have happened with COVID. So this story is going to kind of compete against that idea that only bad things come from bad situations. The second thing it's going to do, it's going to help us see how we can have an impact beyond just our years here as we're alive, breathing oxygen on this earth. Because it's easy to think that, hey, my impact on this world, if I can even have one, is just from the time I start consciously living to the moment that I breathe in my last breath. But we're going to see through the, the life of Stephen that that actually isn't the case. There's a way that we can have an impact that, that passes beyond our years that we're here breathing oxygen. And, and it's kind of the, the, the big overarching theme of this. We're talking about a guy named Stephen, and here we are 2,000 years later, different country, different continent, talking about a guy. We don't even know his last name, by the way, um, but his name is Stephen. And so in Acts chapter 6, we'll get to it in just a little bit, but Acts chapter 6, the beginning of this, it says that the, the early church kind of came to the apostles who were serving as like their pastors and leaders, and they came with some, some complaints and objections, and that was that the apostles were too busy, and they were letting some things fall through the cracks, namely helping some of the widows that were in their community. And so the apostles went, oh man, we need to fix that. And so they created this office of deacon, this position of deacon. 
And they said they selected seven men. Stephen was one of those seven to serve as that kind of hands-on, doer, servant, get stuff done kind of role. And, and we here at Calvary, we have deacons. We have an amazing team of deacons. They're actually going to be serving you guys communion uh, here in just a little bit as a part of our service. And we kind of continue that model together. Now, Stephen is selected here. It doesn't say how they knew Stephen or what went into it, but Acts says that, that Stephen was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So this is just his wonderful tagline for his life. You know, how would you like that to be your tagline thousands of years later? You know, you, you know, whatever your name is, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says about Stephen. Now, let's read what else they have to say about this and kind of dig into uh, why his life is important for us today. So, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders in signs among the people. So, we don't have a lot of information about Stephen, but we've got enough to kind of put together. Hey, this is a very godly man. It's a guy working hard to serve people, working to, to really love God and love Jesus and, and really devote all of his life there. But as I mentioned, this is a story about the martyr, Stephen. So this is actually much less about his life, his service as a deacon, his role there, and really focuses on the last moments of his life. Now let's see why. Uh, Acts 6, verse 9 says, And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? So Stephen is appointed as a deacon and something in the midst of his service, his activity, his, his, his faithful kind of obligations to the people drew the attention of the religious leaders. And even despite seeing the wisdom that he spoke with, it says his face is like an angel. I don't know if that means he has a baby face like me or if he's got kind of like an appearance like Moses after being on the mountain with God like glowing. I don't know what that means. But in the midst of, of recognizing, hey, God is at work in his life, they ignore that and they bring these accusations. And really they have three accusations. The first is that he's blaspheming against Moses and against God. Then he says that, that he's repeating the, the words of Jesus, how Jesus is going to destroy the temple and raise it back up, even though they missed the point that Jesus was talking about his body, how he was going to die and three days later resurrect. And then they say that he's threatening to change the customs of Moses. So this is kind of all leading into this very volatile situation and them bringing Stephen before the high council and saying, is this so? Basically, what do you have to say for yourself? And so Stephen, his response is to give a condensed history of the nation of Israel with a really important point. And he, in 50 verses, he walks through this. I'm not going to read all 50 because I actually want you guys to stay awake for this. Um, but we're going to kind of highlight what he says through that process and how he unpacks the history. And his point in this, Stephen's point was to highlight their misplaced trust. 
See, he's going to walk through five major sections of the history of, of God's people and the nation of Israel, and he's going to show through history, culminating with the actions of these religious leaders here, that they had misplaced their trust, that they were not trusting in God, that they were not walking in faith and obedience to God. In fact, they were resisting God, but he's also going to highlight God's patience through this. So he starts first with, uh, with the character of Abraham. If you're from church, maybe that song comes in your head, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and goes on from there. But he starts with Abraham, and this isn't the beginning of the history of the world, but it's the beginning of the history of Israel. And he, there's a lot he could touch on with Abraham, but he, he starts kind of the beginning of God's interaction with Abraham. And that is when Abraham was supposed to be going to a place called Canaan, but instead, Genesis 11 says that he stopped about halfway in a place called Haran. And in Genesis 11, it says that he and his family settled there. Now, it doesn't seem significant. It's like, oh, he just decided to live somewhere else. But Stephen, Stephen points out as a student of God's history that this was actually significant because Abraham wasn't just deciding to live in a different place, but he was coming up short of his faithfulness to what God had instructed him to do. He moved his trust from the, the directives, the, the instructions that God had given him, and instead placed it in his own comfort, his own decision-making, whatever it may be. And so Stephen identifies that as, hey, at the very beginning, we were misplacing our trust. Then he moves on to Joseph. Um, and Joseph takes up basically most of the book of Genesis, walking through the life of, of, of Joseph. He's a, the great-grandson here. And, and if you've been around church, you know Joseph's story. But if you don't, the, the short of it is he's one of 12 uh, sons. He is the favorite of his father, and kind of everyone knows that. But Joseph receives a vision from God. And the vision is that he's going to be in this place of leadership. He's going to be in this place of influence and even leadership over his brothers. Now, he is young and impulsive and dumb, and so he doesn't handle that, you know, responsibility well, but his brothers handle it even worse. And the story goes that the brothers, instead of trusting, hey, this is difficult, but this is God's plan, this is what God wants to happen, instead, it says that his brothers make a plan first to kill him and then decide, eh, that's really not the right thing. Let's fake his death and sell him as a slave so we can profit off of him and don't feel bad about killing him. So they send him to Egypt. They didn't trust in God's plan, even though it was a good plan, because they trusted in their own selfishness, their own pride, their own motives. But God still worked through this. The faithfulness of God was that Joseph still got into a place of leadership and saved hundreds of thousands of lives through his wisdom and, and following God's leading, including the lives of the very brothers that tried to kill him. So then he moves on to Moses. Stephen moves on then to the life of Moses since they talked about, hey, you're trying to change the customs of Moses. So he's like, let's talk about Moses for a second. And he talks about how Moses, even though he was in a place because of his miraculous saving on the Nile River and growing up in Pharaoh's house, was in this perfect place to enact change and help the Hebrew people but the Hebrew people rejected Moses. Moses made some bad decisions. He flees into the desert and meets God in the desert. God starts speaking to him, and God says, hey, I want you to go back and help get the, my people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses, his response was, yes, that's a great idea. I will trust in that and do exactly as you say, right? No, five different times he resists and goes, no, God, you're wrong. 
I don't think I can do this. Five different times he resists, but God is patient and continues to say, no, I can overcome your shortcomings. We can do this. So then Stephen moves on to Moses. After they succeed in getting people out of Egypt, God works miracles to make that happen. They're in the desert, kind of establishing themselves as a people again. And Moses goes up on the mountain to be with God, to receive the Ten Commandments, which are supposed to be their their kind of guiding points of how do we follow God, how do we please Him, how do we live the way you have designed us to live. And while Moses is up there, the rest of the people are there waiting to hear back from Moses, to hear back from God, and they are just patiently waiting and so faithful, right? No, if you know the story, they go, you know, I think we're done with this Moses guy. I think we're done following God. Let's pool all our resources. Let's melt some gold down. Let's fashion it in the the shape of a cow, and let's all bow down and worship a golden cow. So that's exactly what they do. Moses comes down. He's angry. He actually breaks the tablets with the Ten Commandments. He goes, you know, all parental on them, and it's it's an, a scene. But there's a there's a there's an important point there, and that is that they shifted their trust from trusting in God and His leadership to trusting the works of their hands, to trusting what they could fashion, what they could make, what they could do for themselves. And he's driving at this point very intentionally because we get down to the topic of the temple. They're really upset about this idea of the temple being harmed. So Stephen, in chapter 7, verse 44, I'm going to pick up there, he addresses the idea of the temple. He says, "'Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness.'" just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So, Stephen drives it at a point here of, you guys are making this temple thing such a big deal. The idea of even harming the temple is getting guys so upset. And he's like, but the temple's really not that important. He's like, it's a building, a building that actually doesn't serve a function. He's like, Scripture itself says that God doesn't dwell in a building. We don't don't need a house to contain God. It's like saying that if this building ceased to exist, the, the God we worship would cease to exist. And yet that's the the directive, that's kind of the mentality that they're they're coming at Stephen with. And and really, he's driving at something really important here, and that's that they misplaced their trust. They became so focused on the, the traditions of Moses, so focused on preserving the, the temple and the temple practices and worship there that they actually were worshiping the temple instead of worshiping the God that the temple was supposed to be for. And he keeps going. Because at this point, you're like, you know, hey, it's decent, kind of a Stephen's a little rough around the edges, kind of beating up on him a little bit, but yeah, we can make this work. Like, we may not be laughing on the way to the dinner after church, but it's still going to be fine. We'll keep reading because Stephen's not done. He's got a few more sentences. Verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And these, um, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who you now have betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Did it ever happen to you as a kid, like maybe the house is a little loud and rambunctious and all of a sudden one of the kids got in trouble and like your mom or dad just dropped the hammer and everything went quiet? That's what I picture happening here. Like there's probably some chatter, there's some people bored, there's probably, you know, some people listening to the conversation. They're like, are we done yet? And then we get to that and it goes quiet. Because Stephen goes, you guys are way off here. Because Stephen said, it's not just that you guys have misplaced trust, it's that you've misunderstood the point of following God in general. Because he's, he's wanting them to see that with following Jesus, with, with Christianity, it's not about what you do for God. It's not about what you do for God, but it's about what God has done for us. See, the, the whole practice and system that they were operating in existed in this reality that, that they did everything to find favor with God. They, you know, were good enough people. They did all the right things with, with their, their, you know, Mosaic law. They kept the Sabbath regulations properly. They did all the sacrifices in the temple properly. They, they did all the right things. And so God was happy because they were following the law that God had given to them. And they were worshiping and protecting the temple. But Stephen is like, hey, guys, you missed it. Because if it's about that, if it's about following the practices of our forefathers here, guess what? We just went every major section of Israel's history and every single leader failed. So if it's about keeping up what they did, it's not going to be good enough because they couldn't even do it right. And the, the same is true for us. See, we may not be concerned about protecting the building and, you know, having a temple we may not be like ancient Israel with a gold calf in our living room. If you do, you probably should get rid of that and, you know, start there before doing anything else. We don't have that, that maybe compulsion to, to, you know, protect and have hundreds of laws about how we don't work on the Sabbath like they did. But we still have that same tension. We still say and believe things like, well, I'm not a great person, but or I'm not perfect, but at least I'm a good person. We kind of have that like, hey, God's happy because of my morality, especially that exclusionary morality. Well, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't blank, right? Whatever blank is for you, like I hear that so much. Well, I'm not a perfect person, but at least I don't do this. Like live, batting above average is what gets us into heaven is the idea there. Or we go, well, hey, you know, I'm sure God's happy with me. I go to church this much. Maybe it's even, I, I volunteer in this capacity. I give to this. I volunteered at this. I have this kind of reputation. I did this in the community. But if we believe that we get to heaven based on what we do, we're going to come up short. Because Christianity is not at all about what we can do for God, because if it is, we're like every other failed religion on the history of the planet. Instead, Christianity is about what God did for us because he knew we couldn't be perfect. We couldn't fix our own problems because we just add more problems. And instead, Christianity is about the fact that Jesus came to earth to, to die, to, to fix our problem of sin, to substitute his perfection in place of our imperfection. 
And that's what Stephen's wanting them to, to capture here of, guys, hey, this is not what we need to be doing. The temple is cool, but it's not the most important thing. The law of Moses is important to know and understand, but it's not the most important thing in, in this. Jesus is. But he keeps going. Or actually, he doesn't keep going. That's the end of his speech. And then they respond. And it's kind of interesting to see what, what's their response to this going to be. Stephen has walked them through history. He's stepped on some toes. He's even come with some right hooks at the end here to really drive it home. Verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I've been mad before, but I've never ground my teeth at someone. Just <laughs> clarification there. Doesn't mean I'm good enough to get to heaven. It just means I've never done it. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Now, last week, Joe shared the, the ancient practice of flogging and that torture method on how that was using whips with stones and glass and clay and stuff in them to, to rip the flesh off of someone's back as a torture mechanism. And here it says that Stephen is stoned, and we don't really see that in our culture. We don't use that terminology. It's not talking about what our neighbors in California do recreationally. It, it's talking about something much more serious because what they would do is they would drag someone outside the city. I kind of cracked myself up there. I didn't mean to do that. I was like, just move on, Robert. No, I can't. Um, they would drag someone outside the city walls because they want to get blood on the streets. They'd drag them outside the city and they would surround this person with, with other people and they would pick up rocks. But it wasn't just, you know, some small rocks and stuff. They would actually take their, their cloaks off. And so Saul, which next week we start to hear his story, he, he's the, the, the coat check here. But they would take their cloaks off so they could get down and really grab some rocks. And they would get everything from big, you know, river rocks to, to small boulders. And they would just throw it at the person over and over and over again until they finally died of blunt force trauma. And that's Stephen's end. That's, that's their response. Of Stephen says, hey guys, you're missing the mark. This isn't how we need to be following God, and their response is execution. And, and we could get into to their response and kind of some of the irony that exists there with what Stephen was pointing out, but really I want to focus on what Stephen's side of that really shows us. And I think that the big thing this shows us tonight is that death has no power over Jesus' followers. There's no power that exists there for those that follow Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Stephen died. It, he, he didn't escape death. Humanity has a 100% mortality rate. We're not getting out of this alive. But at the same time, death has no power. And what I mean by that is we so often live our life like death is the ultimate enemy. Death is the ultimate thing to be avoided. And this starts with little kids. If you're a parent, the moment you get an infant in your house, it is death avoidance as the primary goal. Because 
We love them, but those little kids can't make it more than like five minutes on their own. Like that's maybe 30 if they're sleeping, but that's, that's it. So everything we teach our, our little ones is how to not die, like how to not climb off things and fall to their death, how to not burn themselves alive, how to not do these things, right? And they get a little older, they get some independence, and it's like common sense plus death avoidance. So, okay, so now we're going to, you know, wear a helmet, and we're going to look both ways before crossing the street, and we're going to not do stupid things with our friends, and we're going to keep ourselves alive for a few more years, right? And then we get to the teenage years, and all that, like, doubles down. And then it's, hey, when you get a driver's license, go the speed limit, like we actually think that's going to happen. Wear a seatbelt. You know, we say, hey, take your phone places in case there's an emergency, but don't use it while you're driving or you're going to crash and die. And we tell them not to do drugs and drink alcohol. And still we say, wear a helmet and don't do stupid things with friends. And then we get to adulthood and we continue telling ourselves all those things, but we add some new things. We say, hey, make sure your doors are locked and have a home security plan. Check your smoke detectors and learn how to do CPR. We say things like, hey, know what to do in the case of an active shooter. Know where your emergency exits are. By the way, there's four emergency exits in the back, two in the sides, two in the front. Keep in mind, your closest exit may be behind you. We focus on all these things, right? And we say, hey, also, Make sure to wear a helmet and don't do stupid things with friends. It's all about avoiding death. And I don't want to die necessarily, but I think where we get mixed up is, is we give death too much power in our life. We live in a way where we think that the worst thing possible in our life is death, that that's the ultimate boogeyman, that's the ultimate spooky thing in the corner. But what if... What if the worst thing wasn't death, but a life poorly lived? What if the worst thing in our existence wasn't that our existence ceases to exist, but that we live poorly and leave no impact? See, when we look at Stephen, the, the religious leaders there thought that the worst punishment they could possibly give Stephen was death. And yet, Stephen demonstrated very visibly that death had no power over him. He, in the midst of kind of looking and knowing death was imminent, he's, he, he says that he's, he's got joy because he sees heaven opening up and he sees Jesus next to God there. That, that in that moment of death, there can actually be joy instead of terror. That we get so caught up in the fear of death. You know, people say things like, oh, I'm not, not afraid of death, I just, I'm afraid of dying, Right? Because we, it's scary. Like, I've never died. This is all theoretical, by the way. Like, I don't, I don't actually know. But, but we, we live that way. Like, I'm, I'm afraid of this. And yet, Stephen here, he's got joy. He's got peace. He's rejoicing because he sees Jesus. Because he knows there's a homecoming about to happen. He knows that there's something glorious coming. So Stephen demonstrates that even in the moment of death, there can be joy and not terror but also he demonstrates that in that moment there can be impact and not just turmoil. We think that when we die, there's just gonna be turmoil that's left, but he demonstrates here that there can be impact, there can be a significance to our life that carries on afterwards. A couple of weeks ago when I was kind of working through this, this passage and working through this moment of Stephen, I had two individuals come to mind that have passed away in the last year or so. 
And uh, one was kind of an old age after a long battle with cancer, and, and they went to be with Jesus. Another was a young father with a tragic highway accident and completely sudden and unexpected. And both of these individuals were completely different stages of life, completely different states that they lived in, different type of life. One uh, had a lot of notoriety, had a platform, had a social following, and people that, you know, looked to that person for impact. The other was basically just known by family and close friends. And yet both of them, with both of these individuals, I've seen the legacy and the impact that carried on after their death people talking about how they loved Jesus, how they served, how they made such a difference in other people's lives because they were faithful to God and they really actively looked to live that out. See, if we want to have an impact, we can do that, but it starts before we get to that point of our life nearing the end. It starts well before that as we start saying, hey, how can I be faithful to God right now? Stephen said, before this even happened, he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And as we close, I just want to kind of circle back to one detail. It says that as as Stephen was kind of nearing that end before they started the execution, it says he looked into heaven and saw the heavens open. And I actually never caught this until it was pointed out to me by by one of our team. it, It says that Jesus is standing before the right hand of God. Now, to my knowledge, every other time that Scripture alludes to someone seeing a vision of of Jesus at the right hand of God, he's seated on that kind of that throne of power and authority. But in this moment, it says that Jesus is standing. Now, we're not told why. We're not told the reason for this. But I began to think, what are the reasons that someone would stand from a seated position? You'd stand to, to, to greet or say hello to someone you loved, You'd, you'd stand in respect and reverence to something that was happening. You'd stand to see a better view of something amazing. You'd stand to applaud for something truly great. I believe that one, if not all of those, were the reasons that Jesus stood in that moment of seeing Stephen and his faithfulness even at the end of his life. And my prayer is that I would live in a way that would give Jesus a reason to stand in response to my life and my death. And I hope that you live that way too. I hope that you put your trust and your faith in Jesus, that that you live for Jesus in such a way and, and walk in faithfulness to him, that it would give Jesus a reason to stand in response to your life. And when that day does come, that you'd be greeted into heaven with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you just for the difficult truths of those saints that have gone before us and given their lives to to help establish the church that, that we get to be a part of today. We thank you for the difficult reality that the the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church growing and taking form. And we thank you just for the example of Stephen, like so many that came after him living with faithfulness and integrity and just truly following you. God, help us to not misplace our trust, to not live for the things we can build instead of the one who built them, and that is you. God, help us to, to follow and worship you in a way that, that we can, can leave a legacy 
that we can make an impact on the people around us and that we can leave that impact as we leave this earth. God, we know this is all impossible without you, so we ask that you just come into our life and to help us do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.